This is The Future is Yesterday. My name is T. Aaron Sisko. I'm an Afrofuturism author, or you know, Afrofuturist, depending on who you talk to. And uh, yeah, I really wanted to do audiobooks. I got asked by some folks if I did audiobooks. I couldn't figure out how to produce audiobooks. So instead, I've done this uh, podcast where I'm reading from my works. And with this episode, uh, we'll be reading from Big Ass Aliens, which oddly enough, or surprising to me at least, Basically, it was one of my more popular works in my library. I think every time I've done a convention or a book reading or something and brought copies of it, um, I put a lot of work into my covers. I make my own covers. I'm an indie author, so I, I do my own artwork and that kind of stuff. And I, I went kind of simple because this was kind of a nod to old school sci-fi novels. And when people see that title and picked it up, uh, it, it's a whole thing. But anyway, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to love sci-fi serials, magazines like uh, Analog, Weird Tales, or I'd go to the library and use bookstores to find the old pulps and uh, listen to classic radio shows on Saturdays while running errands with my parents and stuff. But uh, So yeah, I was heavily inspired by that. And Big Ass Aliens is my is my take on the classic sort of serialized pulp sci-fi story. It's an alien invasion story at the core, but it's much more about that. And it's hyper-local. I've uh, been in the Twin Cities for a little over a decade and a half and uh yeah big ass aliens was kind of i mean it's allegorical because i think a lot of works you just naturally end up writing what you know and what you experience just kind of find their way in there um but uh yeah so there's a lot of references to some very specific uh, minneapolis or saint paul landmarks and cultural touchstones so if you're not familiar don't worry uh you'll catch on that's not the most important part but it's just the setting I had an office that overlooked the Mississippi River, and you could see downtown. And one day while looking out, I was like, man, what if just giant aliens came? The kicker, of course, or for me, what my, my personal touch is like, I like to think that if something, some species, some creatures out there had the technology to do this interplanetary travel, right? We, It, it wouldn't be like a lot of the stories that have been told where we'd come and go toe to toe either you know try and fight them in a war or be completely decimated by them i i think it'll be more like when here on earth when developers go through the rainforest like they're not really bothered by the flora and fauna it doesn't really pose a significant threat i mean you got a construction team of loggers with bulldozers and chainsaws and all that stuff they don't care what you know the grubs or how they're reacting. And so in Big Ass Aliens, we're the grubs. Anyway, I front sold this way more than I need to. This is Big Ass Aliens, part one, or book one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and even though it's a serial pulp, it's very short, but there's still sort of like chapter markers, which are really just more like scenes because the book, the, the full book itself is a pulp novel, just really quick. Anyway, this is Big Ass Aliens, part one, or book one. North Loop. Thanks for coming last night. No problem. I'm uh, always up for free drinks. Yeah, it, it's nice to have someone who can talk about something other than their latest RPG character twist. Yeah, those guys are pretty weird. You know, I, I know you said you had to work tonight, but would you want to maybe grab a nightcap at my place afterwards? Your place? Yeah, my place. Is that cool? Corey, uh, we should talk. Oh, man, I came out too strong, didn't I? I'm not the smoothest guy. I just thought we had a nice time, and... No, no, you you are a really nice guy. Well, I mean, and 
you know, we spent like the last two hours making out. So I just figured, look, Corey, I, I don't date black guys. Wait, what? I don't date black guys. It's nothing personal. I'm just not attracted to black guys. It's not a race thing. How was it not a race thing? Because it's not racism. It's just a preference. But that's what racism is. It's a preference for one race over others. I mean, okay, it's obviously not going to work, but I'm just trying to figure out. I mean, last night was our fourth date. Oh, so what? You think that because we went out a couple of times that you own me? Now who's the racist? That's not what that's not what racism means. You know what? Forget it. Just one thing. Uh, and I'm sure going to regret asking this, but I, I just got to know. If you don't date people like me, then why did you agree to go out the first time and the second and the third? And oh, look, I read this blog about how like most white people only date other white people. And like, I don't want to be other white people. They're so close minded. You know what I mean? Jesus Christ. So I realized that like, all of my friends and family, like everyone's white. Okay. So I don't want them thinking that I'm a racist because I'm an activist, you know, I'm an ally and I don't care what people think, but I have to make sure that people don't see me the wrong way. Uh, okay. So just so I've got this straight, you went out with someone you weren't interested in solely because of their skin color to prove hypothetically that you don't judge people based on their skin color. Look, Corey, I'm not colorblind. I just respect my place in your world. You made it out of the hood. You should be proud. The hood? We're from the same neighborhood. What are you talking about, the hood? You know what I mean. Oh, God. I shouldn't have asked. Bye. Ugh. I cut off the call and looked out of the window. Just past the fog-shrouded silhouettes of the condominium developments on the other side of the Mississippi River, I glimpsed a shockingly gargantuan, vaguely humanoid shape emerge briefly in the distance. I squinted and leaned forward, but the form quickly vanished behind the thick veil of gray clouds and blowing snow. I shook my head, exasperated at myself for letting a lack of sleep and a hyperactive imagination get the best of me. I checked my watch, certain that I'd killed at least an hour of the morning, but sadly, the face of my comfortably expensive timepiece confirmed that it had indeed only been about 22 minutes. I set my tablet aside and fired up the chess puzzle app on my desktop. Whenever my day dragged, or I was annoyed by conversations with racist girls, uh, losing myself in a few challenging in-game scenarios always made the time fly. Now, I hadn't played a live, face-to-face -face human opponent in about 10 years, but digital games kept my skills sharp. Having been bullied endlessly as a child for my bookish nature, awkward stature, and ambivalence toward the latest trends, I'd found sanctuary within nerdy endeavors. I didn't know I wasn't cool, I just liked what I liked. Between the pages of Michael Crichton, Judy Bloom, and Edgar Allan Poe, I was free from the name-calling and insults. The hours spent watching Star Trek and Doctor Who reruns were hours in which I was safe from the insulting jokes and painful jabs, the rude heckles and brutish shoves, free from black eyes and sucker punches. While the other kids hung around the usual neighborhood spots talking about pop star publicity stunts, I was hanging in my bedroom, reading the liner notes on my records, basking in the auditory brilliance of Leonard Bernstein conducting the New York Philharmonic or being hypnotized by the astoundingly compelling arrangements of Yusuf Latif's take on the Beatles' Hey Jude. My awkward social skills were offset by a perspicacious focus on studying. All that time spent acquiring a wide variety of knowledge on an even wider variety of topics got me a nice position with a lucrative company that, ironically, was staffed with the kind of people I never would have associated with back in the day. My colleagues respect my position, but they're too busy indulging in mid-sized marketing firm perks to notice anything. They were happy to wear jeans to work and play foosball.
They couldn't care any less why the well-dressed black man in the corner office didn't spend his mornings at the coffee stations chatting about predictable movies and cookie-cutter music. I headed outside for a quick smoke. Even in the midst of an April storm, the view was gorgeous. Hundreds of Minneapolites who found their morning commute dashed by the seasonally appropriate, but still unexpected, post-Easter onslaught of sleet and snow showed their unique brand of upper Midwest hardiness by refusing to let the thermometer dictate their sartorial choices. The walking trails and bike paths that coiled in perfect parallel along the riverbanks were packed with a sea of color and fabrics. I didn't like thinking about the past. Nostalgia is deadlier than the poisons I'd been inhaling. We'd been warned about the dangers of tobacco, nicotine, and carcinogens for as long as I can remember, but not once had anyone ever mentioned how focusing too much on the rear view, even when it's right behind you, could be just as detrimental. I finished my smoke and... A clap of thunder tore through the quiet calm of the empty office, causing me to jump. Snowfall and thunder are a hellish combination, but for a seasoned veteran of the Twin Cities, I really should have known better. Chuckling to myself, I sat down and checked a few emails, then reviewed the meeting schedule for the day. The rows of empty white cells on my calendar always made me smile. Aside from a check-in conference call with a tech vendor, my entire day was clear. I just opened the latest report and was beginning to update the quarterly analytics when I felt someone watching me. At first, I thought it might have been Hector and his window washing crew, but the weather wasn't right for dangling dozens of stories above the sidewalk. I resumed reviewing the reports when I felt it again. This time, it wasn't coming from outside the window. The unsettling energy emanated from behind the office door. Before the second series of rhythmic knocking finished, I knew who it was. And at this time in the morning, the person standing on the other side wasn't coming to visit for any business-related matters. You know, although I consider myself to be a fastidious, experienced professional who can handle all kinds of surprises, I hated unscheduled visits. Definitely not when the unscheduled visitor was the obtuse pile of microaggressive obliviousness with a bad haircut currently standing in my doorway. <sighs> Come in. What's up, Corey? How you feeling, fam? Ooh, to call Weston annoying is like saying the ocean has a few fish. It was an understatement so grossly incomplete that it rubbed right up against the border of fallacious. Weston was a wokey dope, someone who tried way too hard to be seen as progressive, as long as it was trendy. I mean, if Weston spent even a tenth of the energy he wasted on trying to be perceived as agreeing with a good cause, on actually doing something towards that good cause, my god, many social and economic woes would be practically eradicated. We'd mildly butted head num heads numerous times over the years, but every argument was the same. He'd come running into my office because some podcast he'd listened to on the way to work mentioned something new, like uh, housing discrimination or educational disparities, police brutality. And he'd be excited to tell me how much he vehemently had disagreed with whatever issue was trending online. It wouldn't have been so bad if he actually was learning about these issues, but his behavior was still blatantly oafish. He didn't get that if you're still objectifying and disrespecting women, it doesn't matter how many t-shirts with the word feminist screen printed across the front you buy. It doesn't matter how many non-white authors and artists you can name if you're uncomfortable around non-white people in real life. Nobody cares that you like rap. I mean, to be fair, Weston wasn't as bad as he could have been. It was better than him being some wild bigot with a pop collar and a red baseball cap complaining about the problems of privilege, but... That didn't mean his obsession with being seen as the vanguard of inclusion wasn't annoying. And if he if he wasn't one of the partners, you know, I would have told him so. I'm fine, Weston. How are you? I told you, my brother. You can call me Dub-Dub. If Weston was like most Minnesotans, he'd limit himself to just enough interactions to have plausible deniability if anyone ever accused him of being a racist. Instead, he relentlessly tried to connect... Well, not with me, but rather his stereotypical idea of what I should be. 
I'm not calling you that, Weston. Well, you seem a little off today. What's up with you? Didn't I see you with Caitlin last night? Oh, man, how's that going? Yeah, that's not a thing anymore. Oh, that's too bad, man. She was cute for a white girl. Okay, can I help you, Weston? No, I'm good. You know how it is. Can you believe the weather out there, bro? It's like like the man can't let us have nothing nice. <sighs> okay, how is the man responsible for snowfall? Okay, okay, Dick. So you know how severe weather changes are due to climate change, right? Well, yeah, but I'm still not following. Well, all those political moves from the rich white politicians to block any significant measures that will rectify our current environmental situation, that's just the white man trying to destroy Mother Earth for us brothers. First, they took our freedom. Now they're trying to take our planet. I shook my head inside. Okay, Weston, first of all, that's a stretch, even for you. And second, you're white. Oh, here we go again with that. Corey, my brother, I told you. I did one of those mail-in tests for genealogy. I'm like 687th African. 687th? Yeah, man, basically, brother, if you go back like two dozen centuries, then my peoples and your peoples are the same peoples. Two two dozen centuries. You know that's over 2,000 years ago. Right, I'm saying. And humans have been around for almost 10,000 years, so... No, no, Weston. It's it's like over 200,000, actually. Well, that's even better. So with just 2,000 years between you and me, we're practically brothers. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that. Anyway, I, I've got work to do, so... Oh, no, no, no. It's cool. Do your thing. I'm just chilling. What do you have going on today? Prepping for a client call? A voice called out. Both of us looked over at the door to see my white knight. Well, black knight, really. Weston nodded and left my office addressing the authoritative woman in the entryway politely. Well, good morning, Miss Vincent. Good morning, Weston. So Fala closed the door behind him and took a seat. We looked at each other for a moment, then broke into a fit of mild laughter. She was the only reason I didn't completely loathe coming into work. So Fala was contagiously positive and energetic. She was the kind of person who valued opportunities for collaboration and avoided the trappings of agency gossip and corporate apathy. She radiated that rare combination of approachable confidence and genuine humility that never crossed into self-deprecation. We'd met ages ago, back when I had just joined the company. Over the years, we had developed a strong friendship with the younger brother-older sister dynamic. She was my window to the socially treacherous world of colleague interaction. Like whenever there was an after-work event or midday break for coffee or just a chance for the staff to get outside for a bit. Someone would run around the office saying stuff like, hey, yo, the lunch trucks are out, who wants to grab a bite? And while I would quietly try to decline, Sofala would swoop in, usually with a casual question that was impossible for my awkwardness to deflect. Hey, Corey, you want to grab lunch now with the tech guys or wait a few minutes and go with me and my team? Uh, oh, I guess I'll go with you, I'd respond. Great, seen a bit. Sofala was a genius. But my appreciation of Sofala was based entirely in platonic professional admiration. I was probably a little envious of her outgoing nature, especially since, unless you count... Weston's uh, 687th African ancestry, we're the only two people of color in the entire firm. Not just in the main office, but counting the suburban branches as well. I like to say that we were the flies in the marketing milk. Sofala preferred to say that we were chocolates on a PR pillow. And that right there kind of summed up the differentiation between our two personalities far more accurately than any Myers-Briggs test results. When she accepted a position with the West Coast office, the panic from hearing that news made me skip lunch for the next three days. I was thrilled that the otherwise monochromatic firm was promoting her to a leadership role, but also worried that tone-deaf folks in the office, which is 
pretty much everyone else in the office, would see me as a new involuntary ambassador for all things not white. After she left, the stress continued, remaining an underlying foundation of uh, anxiety and discomfort. But when the partners announced the fall's return, I was so happy I almost screamed right there in the conference room. It's good to see you again, Corey. Looks like you're doing pretty well. Everything been all right? Well, aside from Weston, you know how it is. But otherwise, can't complain. Well, you could, but who's going to listen, right? How was the West Coast? Warm? Expensive? Not as progressive as you might think. I mean, they talk the talk, but man, out there, almost nobody walks the walk. That sounds about right. I tell you, though, Sofala walked past the, my desk and stared out the window. The weather out there was on point. Forecast for today, 73 degrees. 73. But here, we've got, well, all of this. Yeah, but that's Minnesota, right? What the hell was that? Sofala jumped back. What? I replied nervously. I saw something there, through the clouds, behind the buildings across the river. I dashed over and stared outside at the impenetrable gray veil of clouds obscuring the view. The panic in her voice made my pulse accelerate. I don't see anything, I said. There, Sofala exclaimed, pointing so hard and quickly she chipped a nail in the glass. I was startled by her outburst. I bumped my head against the window again. I'd never seen her so agitated. Rubbing my forehead, I looked to where she was pointing and saw why she'd been so upset. In that moment, I was happy I'd skipped breakfast because my stomach clenched so tight throwing up would have been as painful as it would have been inevitable. My mind scrambled to come up with a rational excuse, but fell short. It was the same shockingly gargantuan, vaguely humanoid shape I thought I'd imagined seeing earlier. There was no question as to whether this was just a delusion brought on by lack of sleep and too many soy lattes. This was real. This was huge. And most unnerving of all, it was steadily moving towards us. What the hell? So Follix stood This is unreal, I stammered. We both stared wide-eyed as the massive shape kept coming. I couldn't believe what we were witnessing any more than I could stop the involuntary tears of bewildered horror from spilling over my cheeks. The shape plowed through the rows of condominiums, sending concrete, glass, and bodies plummeting. My God, so Follix stammered. The shape trudged through the final rows of high-rise condos and entered the river, sending massive waves crashing against the muddy banks. Behind it, thick plumes of gas and despair bellowed up from the ruins of the overpriced luxury housing it had just decimated. Within seconds, at least 400 lives were irrevocably wiped out. The smoke unfurled carelessly, carrying the souls of hundreds killed in the devastation upwards until they blended seamlessly with the low-hanging clouds. The safety glass of my office window was soundproof. But Sofala and I could feel the vibrations of the wanton destruction just across the river. The office was completely silent, save for the sound of our labored breathing and the accelerated thumping of our hearts, which thankfully hadn't yet stopped out of shock. In response to the unexplainable stimulus, the human body has numerous biological responses. Some people experience temporary paralysis. Others are charged with adrenaline and an inherent desire to escape the situation. Luckily for me, Sofala wasn't one to freeze. So Fala grabbed my arm and pulled us out of the office just as another immense humanoid shape brushed against the side of the building, completely demolishing the northeastern corner where we'd just been standing. The floor beneath us buckled as I consciously forced my feet to keep running. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, just to keep moving. So Fala was a few inches ahead and I could see the chaos over her shoulder as we ran. Any other time, this is an impressive office space, we've got the entire floor to ourselves, a completely open layout, but now, running for our lives to an obstacle course of copiers, meeting tables, and beanbag chairs, our colleagues on all sides screaming and pointing, running and diving for cover. God, I wish we had been in a smaller workspace closer to the ground. We made it to the doors leading to the central hallway. I noticed Weston staring at the gaping hole that used to be the sunny side of the office. Couldn't tell if he was frozen with fear or genuinely that daft. 
or maybe he didn't realize the treacherous gravity of the current situation. Weston! Sofala yelled. A massive tendril slithered in through the hole in the side of the building. The appendage was muscular and thick, glistening and wet from the April snow. It moved deliberately, wrapping around Weston's waist with astonishing precision and speed. Sofala and I and the rest of the staff that hadn't made it out through the crowded central hallway door stared in horror as the little mounds on that arm began to pulsate. The mounds elongated, crawling across Weston's pale blue shirt in an oscillating motion. Smaller tentacles reached his hairline and flattened against his ears and face, encasing his head within a grotesque cocoon. What the hell? I gasped as the last words stumbled from my lips. The cocoon abruptly withdrew, sloughing off the skin and hair of Weston's head in one fluid motion. The larger main tendril around his waist constricted so violently that a large portion of his lower digestive organs and various fluids and substances contained within were expelled ferociously through both his upper and lower orifices. The sound of the instantaneous excretion was worse than the visuals. Before I had a chance to fully grasp the horror that we'd just witnessed, the tendril yanked Weston's body violently towards the jagged opening of the building. His fleshless head banged sickeningly against the exposed rebar of the craggy edges of the hole, catching briefly on the battered exposed metal edge of the thick electrical conduit jutting out from the remains of the ceiling. He hung there for a few seconds, lodged in a grisly impasse. His khakis were stained dark with bile and blood. They hung low on his hips, weighed down by the unnervingly biological bounty of internal organs floating, excrements, and digestive fluids within. The glossy grayish purple of his small intestines peeked out from his pant cuffs. The tendril constricted and yanked again, causing the piping to shred his scalp, sending his skull cap flipping back. Sending his, seeing his intracranial space exposed was so alarmingly abrupt and disturbing, it was almost comically surreal. The sensation was so overwhelming that I couldn't feel anything at all. My mind shut down as his mangled body was dragged out into the cold April air. Weston's nightmarish death triggered a rush of adrenaline that increased Sofala's already intensely agitated state. She looked at me. I couldn't see her looking at me, but I could feel her gaze. I was frozen, staring unblinking at the irregular stains that served as the last remnants of our hideously deceased colleague. I never liked Weston. Nobody in the office really did, but Weston wasn't a bad person. He was merely annoying. Everyone is, has been, or eventually will be considered annoying to someone else, but it's not enough to warrant disembowelment and scalping via ginormous extraterrestrial monster. Even at worst, there was nothing he'd done to earn such a hermit's face. Uh, so follow Grafney. Her grip on my arm freed me from my temporary paralysis. I looked at her. What transpired was completely wordless and completely understood. The look conveyed more than lunchtime chats, text, or emails ever could. I looked back and nodded in agreement. We had to escape.